Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. for July 10th, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shifflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, we're excited about the show tonight. Joining us again from um, Harvard and uh, author of Flight. John DeLaVolpe is going to come on again. We can ask him a few questions about the book, but we're also going to kind of get into 2022 and this actual cycle and the Gen Z voter. I mean, he's kind of the seen as the best expert we have on um, Generation Z voters, iGen voters. Um, and so we're going to get his take on what this year holds and some other things like that. Um, but until then, Catherine's going to be with us through the international portion of the show. Um, we're going to have two international topics, and one of them is a very sad occurrence um, internationally on Friday. I guess we all woke up to the news, although maybe for some point it would have been that night before because of the international dateline. But on Friday, um, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of Japan was assassinated campaigning south of Tokyo. I don't remember the exact name of the city, but I remember seeing on the map it was south of Tokyo. Um, I believe he's the only, he's the longest-serving prime minister, the only you know big official in their country to ever be assassinated. And I read something else. In all of 2021, there was one homicide by gun in all of Japan. And then this happened this year. I don't know about other things. But this gun was actually a homemade gun, um, duct tape and pipe and I don't know what else. I'm certainly not going to do too much research on the Internet, um, looking up much more about it, but I did see the photos um, on TV. Um, Catherine, what was your reaction to the news of Prime Minister Abe's assassination? Well, I was shocked. Um, I was especially shocked when I – learned that he was shot because it's so uncommon in uh, Japan. Guns are so rare in Japan. So it was shocking. And, you know, it's any, any gun, any gun violence is shocking and, you know, horrifying. But when it's a, a, you know, international leader, um, it's that much more surprising. I mean, I can't imagine that he didn't have, you know, exceptional um, protection and all that. So, yes, it was it was very um, shocking, and I'm sure the Japanese people are um, still reeling from the news. Yes. Um, Tim, I know you probably were following cable news uh, more than Catherine and I were on Friday. Uh, what's some information and thoughts you have? Um. You know, it's a nation of 125 million people, and there's only about 100,000 gun owners 
in in the whole country. This gun, of course, was was homemade by a 41-year-old unemployed man who um, told the police that uh, former Prime Minister Abe was uh, a member of a group who had wronged him in some way. They they really didn't say much beyond that. Um, I, I heard one expert say that this was maybe Japan's version of the JFK assassination because uh, uh, even though he had resigned a couple of years ago because of health reasons, he he, he remained perhaps the most popular politician in Japan uh, to this date. And it was just, of course, stunning to all the Japanese people. And uh, I'm just uh, real, real, sor- real sorry that something like this happened because uh, he still had a lot to give. And uh, it's really sad. Yeah, um, I would even say since it's the first one, in many ways it's like Lincoln because the security – probably for their elected officials was very different, just like ours was prior to Lincoln, who would just walk down to the telegraph office to get reports of the Civil War. And from there, they had to establish a much more robust secret service and whatnot. And security was different, even though McKinley got shot afterward, Kennedy got shot, um, Reagan got shot, not, you know, fortunately not murdered. Um, but you, you had more incidents, but there was a security force after Lincoln, so um, you maybe have to go that, back that far. Um, one thing I kind of just struck me, and this was, I guess, uh, about a week before that, there was a, a mass shooting over in Europe in a country that really has no gun violence. And it's like somehow whatever is kind of ailing America with gun violence is kind of spreaded, spread to other parts of the world. And, and that's the kind of American culture that I don't think we want to – um, export. Um, Catherine, do you think this is kind of a sign of something bigger in the world, not just in America with, you know, how people are functioning? Well, I think there's a lot of anxiety and fear and, you know, global and global information is so available. Um, you know, all the movies are shown, you know, everywhere and the streaming services and all this stuff. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, what we might call entertainment that does contain some violence. I'm not blaming that, but it is there. But then there's just, I mean, we're in a, we're still in a pandemic. We're still, there's still, you know, a lot of global, um, economic woes. And, uh, I mean, it's just, It's not, I mean, it's surprising to see gun violence, but it's not really surprising to me to see um, violence because that's sort of the outlet of, you know, anxiety and fear often ends in violence against people. So it's very sad. Yeah, and, and Tim, I was able to find content you know, information about this when I, you know, sought it out. But to me, it didn't seem to have the level of coverage I would have expected. Um, 
were you kind of surprised at the, the, the lack of, you know, top-line coverage that this incident had? Actually, I was able to see a lot of it. Uh, as you mentioned, I was, you know, plugged into cable news, and, and uh, they were talking about it a lot. So I, I didn't have any problem getting getting it at all, uh, because it is such a, it was covered so heavily because it it was you know something that just doesn't ever happen uh, over there. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, I'll tell you this: that morning, because I actually I was under the weather Friday. I woke up and I saw some coverage of it. It was pretty top line, um, but then later the day when I actually had a little more energy, I looked. Um, I look back at CNN.com and the, the Highland Park incident that happened over the 4th of July weekend, um, it was still getting top coverage. And then I know that's domestic. That's in our country. And, and on some of these incidents, I do think it's really important to do a quick, you know, scan around the main three networks um, just to see what people are getting. And, and I didn't do that because, um, like I said, I wasn't my full capabilities. But did it seem to get equal coverage from what you all know on – um, MSNBC, CNN, and Fox, it, all three, it, or did one it, cover more it, than it, the others? I, I know MSNBC covered it heavily. Every time a, a new show would come on, either on on the hour or every other hour, that would be one of the first one to three things that they would talk about. I know CNN talked about it a pretty good bit. I can't speak to Fox. That I do not know about. Yeah, and that's one thing. I do think it's, I mean, even though I think it's opinion coverage, it's not quality um, information on these big events that happen. I do like to real quickly look at the front page or possibly turn over there for just a second and see if they are actually covering it because I do have a firm belief that we are getting such a um, funhouse mirror view of the world based on, you know, if we get good information and we don't from news media, and a lot of that is self-selecting. Um, mm-hmm. Let's kind of move over to the other uh, other side of the, the world and something that happened the day before um, that kind of rocked the political mm-hmm. world. You would have thought it would have been the biggest political story worldwide, um, but it was sadly for less than 24 hours, and that was uh, Boris um, Johnson resigned. And I actually did a little research trying to figure out, you know, what's going on here exactly. Because there were some moving parts to it. It sounded like a kind of a slow-moving thing. It wasn't just one incident. It was uh, an accumulation of this undersecretary in his cabinet getting promoted at the same time, more and more incidents coming out. Um, and so eventually, I think the number got up to about 60. Um, 60 people in the conservative government um, resigned. And so Boris Johnson said he's stepping down, but he's not stepping down until October um, uh, I guess he's given more than a two-week notice, right, Catherine? Yeah, I was surprised by that. What did you learn? Like, what that was there some like reason for that or like explanation for that? Is it like a timing thing, well, like in their calendar well, or something? Apparently, that it's not triggering a, a vote of you know a new of no confidence in the government. It's going to be a party leadership election, so the conservatives, the Tories, will keep control of the parliament at this time. But the rumor is is the reason he wants to stay on through 
um, October is because he and his wife, which they were not married when he became prime minister. They got married at some point during this term, and they were going to have a big wedding event since they got married at some point during COVID um, lockdowns. And so he wanted to have this big event you know, with the trappings of being prime minister is the rumor. And so this party is planned for um, between now and his resignation date. I don't understand why they can't say, look, you have the stupid party, just go, bye. You know, you, you can rent out the hall, but go. Um, so that's apparently the rumor. Tim, what do you know? Well, there's, there's uh, some confusion there, too. You know, there's no provision in English law for, like, a caretaker of the position, should he just go ahead and leave right now. Does that mean there wouldn't be a prime minister? or Well, you know, nobody is sure. Uh, it would take oh, okay. about three months for there to be an election. And, and there's another thing, too. Although he's announced his resignation, uh, technically, to the letter of the law, he has not resigned. A prime minister has to resign to the monarch, to the queen in person just like a new prime minister has to present themselves to the queen uh, when they assume the office. Uh, and he hasn't, of course, done that either. So nobody is really for certain where this would go because most of the time prime ministers don't just uh, all of a sudden uh, lose control of their parties and quit. Most of the time prime ministers are are beaten, you know, uh, are beaten in the elections, the parliamentary elections, and then, uh, you know, whoever prevails in those gets to form a new government. That's the way it goes over there. This uh, is not something that normally happens. So, yes, they're, they they're really some not sure. Of well, they don't. Apparently. I mean, that, this seems like there somebody is, could get sick. No, somebody could die. There could be an assassination. Yeah, and, I mean. and they have a provision for that if the prime minister becomes incapacitated, just like we have that here um, in our Constitution. But they do not have provisions for if the prime minister, as the leader of the party, is tossed out by the party he's leading. And without a party to lead, he can't be really prime minister. But, you know, all the other things I've said, it's very confusing. Yeah, it, it is a complicated form of government. One, because it's just different from what we have. I think there may be some parts that are more streamlined. Something I didn't realize when I was watching some video of this, they had uh, the prime minister's questions hour. And I'm like, wait, is that Theresa May? And I looked it up. Oh, she's still in parliament. The former prime minister still serves in parliament. Uh -huh. that's, we're not used to that. We entered the John Quincy Adams situation in, you know, 200 years. Um, so that's kind of yeah. a different thing. Um, so it is like a, a complex system. Um, Catherine, so, um, what do you make of this in this world picture of just a lot of upheaval across the globe? I think it's just another example of it. Um, and I think it's really interesting that they don't have a, any plan for this. I guess in most cases, this kind of thing is done behind the scenes, right? So 
he would the, the party would would explain their disappointment in him and he would have a conversation with the queen and then they would you know it would all kind of unroll in that way but um it was so public that i guess it and also all the um criticism about the some of his activities i think was also very public so but i think it's just another example of this sort of global insecurity and anxiety that um people are facing and you know trying to you know blame someone or make someone responsible for it and you know that's just i'm not i mean i'm not sorry to see him go uh but like you said it's such a strange to us such a strange um government and a strange system it'll be interesting to watch how it un- unravels over the next between now and october Yes, and I don't remember the guy's name, and, and Tim, if you know this undersecretary's name, he apparently had got put out of the government before, and then John, Boris Johnson brought him back and has promoted him and promoted him and promoted him up to pretty high in the government, and more allegations have happened. Uh, he got compared to Harvey Weinstein, so without knowing the, the actual exact list of how many different you know, situations there might be, when you get compared to Harvey Weinstein, it's not good. Um, you know, in any any situation, much less in government, uh, governmental affairs. And so this the loyalty to this individual seemingly is what was the straw that broke the camel's back, or do you think there was even more to it? Well, there were there were some more things going on too that were piling up. Uh, I've I've noticed over the years that these populists who are shall we say, both bombastic and controversial, the the public seems to tire of them after a time. Um, so he was already suffering with the public as they increasingly turned on him, uh, especially because of the economy that's on the verge of collapse. You see, he was the face of Brexit. And when right. things got messy with that issue, well, he's the one that was going to take the hit. You've already been talking about just one of the scandals, but there's been a series of them, and it's cost him support in Parliament, in the Conservative Party, and, and in the ranks of his own government, as you saw with all the people that, that hit the road. Uh, and he just couldn't couldn't lead anymore. Uh, he was a funny distraction when he was Lord Mayor of London, but but as a national leader, it, it, it's just been different with him. And another bunch, there is one bunch in Europe that's not glad to see him go. And that's Ukraine, because he was one of their most ardent supporters. But I don't believe anything much will change between the British yeah. and the Ukraine. On account of this, but the Brexit thing—that was ooh, ooh. Yeah, and and either one of y'all know which or how soon the British have to hold an election to where you know British voters could really you know look at this entire situation and see what they think. Well, I have no idea. See, the next the next elections are the parliamentary elections. As I mentioned, this guy. Ooh, 
lost the leadership of his party. His party meets again in mass, I understand, in October to elect a new leader. That new leader will be put forward as the new prime minister. What I don't know within is a matter of months or within a five-year period, because I know they have to call elections I, no less than every five years. Yeah, but but uh, I, I don't know about general elections after that. I just know for right now to serve out this term, they've got to get a new guy, and the party, the conservative party from its ranks, will select that new person. There's going to be about ten people, by the way, that want that job. So good luck with straightening all that out. And I, I'm I don't think they they are quite sure what they're going to do. To be or how they're going to do it. It's a mess. Yes, and, and the, the one thing is, is, is the party people can find who they want as the leader and put that person up. It's not like they have to go through a nomination process throughout the general electorate. Well, Catherine, we want to thank you for coming on, like I said, for the international portion of the show. We know you've got to run, but we'll see you next week when we welcome Mike Mickus back to the show. Okay, thanks a lot, guys. See you, see you next week. All right. Have a good week. All right, and I want to welcome onto our show and a little tag in, tag out for the second time to the Kudzu Vine uh, from Harvard University, um, author of Fight, John De La Volpe. Welcome, John. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be with you. Yes. Now, um, when we had John before, I think we were maybe you know right in the midst of the book tour, and I could tell the book would do well. But since we had you on, it just seems like I've seen the book, you, everything in the news. Um, have you been kind of really astounded by the reception um, to your, your book? Um, thank you. Yes, I think I kind of, you know, one of our, one of, one of our first interviews um, back in, in January or February. So I, I, I appreciate that. But, um, yes, I've really been kind of by, been touched by the, by the reception. Uh, but you know, it's not about, you know, it's not about the book. I think it's really about Gen Z stepping up and engaging in such a significant way, you know, in our politics in the country right now that, you know, um, thankfully some of the things that we were sharing about the book has begun to resonate with others to try to kind of deep, more deeply understand, you know, the, the values behind, you know, who this, who this great generation is. Yes. Well, and, and I, I know uh, Tim had read the book before you came on. I have now listened to the book, and, and I was familiar with it, so I felt, you know, really in tune with the material. But a lot of it was about the mass of, of Gen Z voters. But you did tell a story about an individual from Milton, Georgia, um, Bruno. Hmm. Um, and and yes. Bruno was involved in the insurrection, and he was in this Gen Z cohort too. And so I just thought I'd ask you, what percentage, maybe not of people that actually participated in the insurrection, but people that have to the, well to the right of uh, center-leaning political views, are there in this generation, like Bruno? Yeah, well, you know, you're right. Chapter 5 of the book is uh, titled Backlash, and, you know, it's a story – of, of, you know, of, of Bruno Kua, the youngest uh, uh, insurrectionist from Milton, Georgia, as you said, and, and Thomas Russo, who's, 
who's made um, in the news in the last several weeks, last week in Boston, a couple weeks before that in Idaho as the leader of the, of the Patriot Front in terms of, you know, um, two, two uh, young Gen Zers, really kind of the faces of the, of the new alt-right, right, or the, or the far right. Thankfully, you know, the proportion of this generation that subscribes to those, to those views is much smaller than other generations. But it's significant, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing to measure, but there's, it, it, you know, 10 to 15 percent, I think, of this generation who, you know, who question the legitimacy of the last election, you know, or subscribe to some series of, you know, highly prejudicious uh, views on a variety, on, you know, on, based upon race and religion and those sorts of things. So it's a smaller proportion of this generation than Xers and, and boomers, but it's still highly significant. And I think it's, it's really just exacerbated, has the potential to exacerbate based upon, you know, the high degree of, uh, of, um, of, of, of depression and lack of um, hopefulness that, you know, some, some specifically, you know, young white male members of this generation face and lead them to searching for answers and searching for communities. And too often, I think they find places that are, you know, just, far more destructive, um, you know, uh, places than, 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 than should be. Yes. And also I wanted to ask you another question that, that this kind of brought up and me thinking about some other things is you and I are both mm-hmm. members of Generation X. And I don't know about yourself, right. but the first time I voted was in 92. Um, mm-hmm. And members of our generation, the majority of us, without looking at the numbers in front of me, I'm pretty sure from recall, voted for President Clinton. Um, now, Generation X polling showing is the most conservative um, generation of the generation strands there are. Now, some people like to say, oh, you get older, you get a mortgage, you have kids, and you, could, you get more conservative. I'm not so sure that the folks that voted for Clinton didn't make, by and large, keep voting for Democrats, and the people that voted for George W. Bush, or George H. W. Bush, and then Bob Dole didn't keep voting for Republicans. But what actually happened was the non-voters in our generation age just yep. started voting, and more of them voted Republican. That's my hypothesis. And then you can speak to that, but then also there's a big pool of non-voting Gen Z voters, like there is in every age range. And how do you right. think those voters might possibly vote once they start uh, picking up ballots and heading to the polls? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. You know, what what I found through kind of researching this book and looking at voting trends of of not only you know Gen Z but the the, the generations that preceded them is that the the, the the voting patterns and the values that that people exhibit when they're younger generally carry through the the you know throughout through through adulthood. You know, and in Gen X, our generation um, has really they didn't have a central political identity like millennials and, and Gen Z is out there. Our generation has roughly been split 50-50, really, when you, when you look at the last, um, you know, the, the elections when, when our generation was younger. And essentially, they're the same way, though, they have been, I think you're, you're right, kind of leaning a little bit further to the right, um, over the, over the last uh, several years, you know, our generation was heavily influenced by Ronald Reagan and his, you know, his call that, you know, government wasn't the problem, you know, that government was the problem. So um, we generally have had a, a pretty 
you know, um, negative view of, uh, of, of, of big government. And I think that's being reflected in some of the move to the right of, of Gen X as we, as we age. But your point about non-voters coming in at later ages as more conservative um, than the more active voters, I think, you know, rings true both for, for, for Gen Z as well as for millennials. You know, 66% of millennials voted for Obama in the first election. 60% voted for Obama in 2012. But when we look at the, you know, the millennial vote for um, in the last presidential election, it was, you know, heavily Democratic, but wasn't close to the 60 to 66, you know, um, uh, uh, numbers that Democrats saw in the earlier years. The non-voters, when they were early coming in, you know, looking to be more, much more moderate and, and center-right. Um, I anticipate that could also happen, frankly, with, uh, with Gen Z. Um, the more active you are, I think the more likely right now you are to, you know, support, to support government, to support, you know, um, the agenda that uh, the Democrats are favoring these days. So it will be something that I think it's going to be important for to watch. And I always say there's just an, like a tremendous opportunity. Um, Democrats need to win generally 60% of this cohort in order to maintain, you know, uh, a, a national electoral level, uh, you know, uh, a majority or victory in presidential uh, elections. They don't, uh, but um, at some point, you know, as I talk about in the book, you know, Republicans have to do more than just limit the loss to Democrats. They actually need to compete to win. And so far, you know, in the last, you know, several years, obviously there's been very little effort, you know, by Republicans to actually kind of engage and try to persuade, you know, members of uh, either the millennial or, or the, uh, or Gen Z. All right. I've got one more question before I pass it to Tim and then I may have something else, but you know, this, this generation, uh, generation Z, I know there was another book that talked about this generation, not political terms called IGN. And the whole idea was this is the generation that was, you know, born on the phone, born on the Internet, mm-hmm. always connected. And so everything's electronic. They, they like Venmo better than cash. They, you know, um, download movies. They don't get anything physical. And they're so used to doing things that way. If we look at how our voting systems have been going in a lot of red states where everything's physical, you have to show this piece of plastic, you have to show up. You have to stand in the line. You have to get another piece of paper and scan it a second time and maybe get a little receipt and take it somewhere. And it's, very, it's a very old-school physical world. Do you think this will be a turnoff to Gen Z, or will they just fight through it and know that they've just got to deal with these old ways to make change? It's a great question. I mean, we, we saw similar barriers, and we still see similar barriers even on college campuses you know, around absentee voting and those sorts of things, David. But, you know, the, 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 the issues, uh, there's an urgency to this generation, right? And the, and the things that they care about, I believe, far outweigh, you know, kind of the hassles and some of those kind of mechanical barriers that we talk about to participation. This generation is incredibly concerned, you know, especially if you just look at the last, you know, kind of several weeks about kind of a loss of personal freedom and rights you know the overturn of roe v wade is, is just the latest example but you take that and, and they're concerned about the environment climate change safe in schools 
there's, a, there's such a concern about protecting those even more vulnerable from them than them. And they believe that government should be playing a more active role in that. So, yes, um, uh, I, I do think that there are kind of, uh, you know, kind of hassles and a certain number of barriers that uh, affect co- important cohorts of the electorate, specifically young people. But I'm hopeful and I expect that the, that the nature of these issues are so urgent to this generation that um, unlike perhaps previous cycles, that won't be something that keeps many of them back. I yes. think fight well, I'm going to pass it to Tim Shiflett. Yeah, and Great. he's going to ask about questions a lot about 2022 and issues facing us and everything else. Tim? Good evening, sir, and thank you for being with us again. I want to continue for a moment, if I may, in the book. Um, it was an excellent book, by the way. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, thank you. One of the titles, chapters, was called I Hear You. And it was a Mm. recurring theme that Joe Biden kept going back to, including to the youngest voters. And it seemed that it presented effective contact, if, if I may use those words, with Generation Zers. Is there enough effective contact being made with young voters by campaign this year? It's, it's, I don't think so. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a question that I'm, you know, commonly, commonly asked. And, and you get to put it into perspective a couple of different places. Number one is that, um, as, we, as, as we know, there's just a significant concern about Young, young people have a significant concern about the anxiety and the stress that they feel in their own lives. One way they tell me through my research that they can manage that is to not, you know, kind of check into the, all the political news like they did in the previous, you know, presidential cycle. It's just very stressful and, 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 and makes them even more anxious. So one thing is they're purposely unplugging from a lot of the traditional political content that they might have consumed a year or two ago. So that makes mm-hmm. it more difficult, you know, for candidates and campaigns and the presidents and Congress to kind of connect with them on a regular basis. That's one. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean that they're less likely to vote. It doesn't mean that they're less likely to care. They're just trying to find whatever ways they can to manage kind of their own mental health, like all of us on a day-to-day basis. So that means that campaigns and candidates have to work extra hard you know, to kind of con- to, to find them and to, and to connect with them. And I, and I think that it starts with not just, you know, laying out, a, 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 you know, a bunch of promises, that, a bunch of pledges that you may or may not keep, but what Joe Biden did, you know, on St. Patrick's Day back in 2020 when, when, you know, when Bernie Sanders was still in the race but pretty much on the ropes and about to withdraw, he said, listen, I hear you. You, mm-hmm. We may not have had a conversation in the last several months, but we believe the same things. We share the similar values. You know, you know, you know, his, Biden and his opponents, you know, might have had kind of different pathways to, uh, to, to achieve a, a particular goal. At the end of the day, those values were very much aligned with his fellow Democrats and ultimately with Gen Z. And, and sometimes you kind of just need to start from, you know, from that kind of, 
you know, kind of home base. I hear you. Here are my values. And you need to build trust as a messenger um, because too often, I think, especially people kind of in my field, we think about the perfect message. It has to start with building trust with a messenger. And unless you can build trust between the younger people and the messenger around shared values, that message and the exact combination of words and phrases that you might put in a 30-second commercial or a line of debate won't necessarily be as effective. So it's all about creating that connection and building trust with a messenger. So are, are young voters disappointed with the Biden administration? Yeah, listen, I, I, think it's, I think it's fair. I, I think it's fair to say, yeah, that they, they're disappointed generally. You know, you know, there's mm-hmm. no... You know, there's no generation gap, really, um, when you look at the uh, approval rating uh, uh, of, uh, of the president right now. We know there's a massive generation gap, as we've talked about before, in the actual ter- uh, in, in the vote from 2020, you know, um, without younger people, Joe Biden's not president. You know, uh, Donald Trump won the votes of most everybody over the age of 45 in those five swing states. But that gap. Um, doesn't really exist, and, and, and President Biden is underwater with, with younger people. So, yeah, there's a, there's a um, I think there's an overall kind of concern in their minds about basically of the pace of, of change. Now, interestingly, that doesn't necessarily equate to, to younger people being less likely to support Democrats in November. Mm-hmm. They're having this so, pattern as older Americans, right? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm a baby boomer, uh, and when when I was a kid, we 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 had spokesmen for what we believed. That we we had John Kennedy talking about the new frontier. We we had Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. We had hmm. King and Bobby Kennedy talking about civil rights and, and and opposing the war in Vietnam. Are young voters as a group now looking for a national spokesperson of that type? I you know, I think that's I think that's fair and I would argue that currently, you know, those those, those spokespeople, perhaps, are the, are the members of their, of their own generation, right? It's, uh-huh. it's, 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 the, it's the young leaders, many of which I profiled in the book, certainly, you know, uh-huh. uh, David Hogg and the young people, uh-huh. you know, from mm-hmm. Parkland who organized, you know, a few weeks ago after Uvalde. But it, it, it's kind of, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been transformed from a kind of a, a bottom-up sort of, of movement and grassroots. But I do think that there was a significant opportunity for young people to find someone, like you mentioned, like the boomers had to to kind of rally rally around. I do think that's a that's a that's an opportunity, perhaps a missing opportunity, because young people do believe, you know, Tim, in the value of uh, of governments. You know, they don't like mm-hmm. it. You know, they're more disenchanted today than they were a year ago or even six months ago when we spoke last. But they but they're going to participate because they know it's necessary. The scope of the challenges are so significant. The urgency is there unlike it ever has been. And, um, 
you know, and, and they're doing everything they can. And I do think they're looking for for a, 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 a additional leadership and leaders to, to rally behind as well. It's a great point. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking at issues that young voters think about, of course, we think about affordable education, uh, the economy, gun violence, the environment, and on and on. Is there an issue that we can point to and say this is the issue for young voters? This is the central issue. Is, is there is there such a thing? I don't know if there is one issue, but I, I just I just wrapped up a, a one of my largest surveys ever on Generation Z, almost four thousand mm-hmm. almost four thousand young Americans. And uh, it's a combination uh, of issues, right? Well, you know, one of which is um, it's focused on school shootings and gun violence. I mean, young people mm-hmm. need and deserve to be, as we all do, to be safe, you know, um, in, uh, in, in, in public schools and, and other public places, and they want government to do more. That's, that's certainly kind of one. You know, another one is there, there, as you talked about, is this kind of significant concern, not about climate change, but specifically just about access, you know, to clean air and clean water. And this concern that that and a series of other, what they would consider human rights, are being eroded in this country. So these issues, mm-hmm. including, frankly, access to a quality education, as you also noted, these issues are, I think, kind of wrapped around kind of this more central set of values that I talked about a moment ago around individual uh, rights and freedoms. That language has been something that that you know can, conservatives and um, have been have, have have been using for for a generation. But I'm hearing more and more of this concern from younger Gen Zers, many of which are far more progressive than their elders, that they're seeing this kind of eroding of basic rights. And this is frankly before you know, the court overturned Roe v. Wade. So I think that wrapping up these issues around the umbrella of of individual rights and freedoms, within that you've got choice, what a woman Mm -hmm. can do with her body. You have access not just to higher education, but quality education for anybody regardless of what zip code they live in in this country, access to clean water, uh, clean air, and, and, and the ability to be safe. Those are, you know, the core four or five um, issues that I hear uh, young people talk about. And, of course, I think the, you know, the, the next one is this kind of uh, concern that it's just, it's just things are so expensive. It's just so challenging, you know, to, 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 uh, to live the similar life that your parents or your grandparents might have led. You know, you know that yes, you can find a job, but it's just incredibly challenging to to get a job that allows you to pay down your student debt and to afford a home, you know, um, in the in the city or town that you grew up in. So the cost of housing and the the cost of living is something obviously that is another one of those kind of core issues that younger people, like all of us, care care deeply about. Uh-uh. And the final question, and I'll I'll give it uh, back to David. Is this group ready in mass to come out and effectively push for these 
sweeping social reforms, government reforms that that they crave, and is it the ballot box that they're going to choose to do that, and will they do that in November? Well, well listen, Tim, in 2018, we saw the highest level of participation in midterm election in the last four years. Um, yes, sir. It was good. It was, I mean, only but still only a third voted, essentially. You know, when, when mm-hmm. boomers and Xers and millennials were this age, you know, somewhere between 16 and 21 or so percent participated. Now we have 34, 35 percent, you know, and mm-hmm. it was over 50 percent in the 2020 midterm. So, yeah, they seem to me in this early polling as prepared to vote in 2022 as they did in 2018, but that's not enough, I argue. You know, that um, our grandparents, um, members of the greatest generation, I mean, 70% of that generation participated in efforts to stop fascism during World War II, mm-hmm. and many places, you know, they put their lives on the line, you know. Mm-hmm. So young people seem as engaged as they've ever been. I think the, what we saw from the court um, over the last couple of weeks will only further engage them. I think that mm-hmm. if President Biden, you know, um, uh, you know, kind of makes good on his promise to, um, to relieve uh, student debt for a significant portion of younger Americans, um, I think mm-hmm. that also has an opportunity to further bolster turnout. And frankly, you know, I think the, kind of the, the re-engagement of, of President Trump um, in in our national um, landscape, also it's just a, just another reminder about the of the importance of political engagement and the differences between between the parties. So I've been optimistic um, for the last several months about about solid turnout, but again, never it's just never enough as far as I'm concerned. And in the quickest way, you know, to I believe to to preserve our democracy and put America back, <clears throat> you know, um, on the right track is for twice as number, twice as many of young people to, to participate. Every person who voted last time to bring a couple of friends, you get to the 60 to 70 percent number. Um, and that's when really, um, I think, you know, you have um, a, a very different country. I thank you, sir, for that. And with that, I'll give it back to David. David? Yes, and I did want to kind of drill down into um, maybe more specifics of what you may have gleaned so far. I know in 2021 and those off-year elections in Virginia and um, New Jersey, not good for Democrats. There were a multitude of reasons, but Gen Z voters did not show up in big numbers from what I understand. Um, in the right. North Carolina primary elections, the younger voters not voting in big numbers. But all that happened prior to the Dobbs ruling, uh, prior to yet another multi-round of um, you know, mass shootings that may move these voters. And then the threats of what could happen to things like um, gay and lesbian rights. Um, from what hmm. you've seen so far and what your research has shown, how much different may those numbers be in November than they have since last November? Well, you know, um, you're right. I, I, younger voters did not play uh, a significant role in, regarding turnout in, in those in those off-year elections. You know, and one reason is, as we talked about, it's it's a challenge, you know, to target and communicate um, and identify young voters. But you need to make that effort. 
if campaigns go, if, if Joe Biden didn't say, st- basically stop the campaign and say, listen, young people, I hear you. I respect you. Let's have a conversation. Let me earn your trust. He doesn't win uh, that youth vote by the, by the significant margin that he did. He's probably not president today. So what I would argue is, is that what Terry McAuliffe did? I don't think so in Virginia. I don't think that was the case um, in, in New Jersey um, as well. So, you know, young people, you know, like like every like every other group need to be um, not taken for granted and, uh, you know, and and kind of engage kind of throughout the campaign, not just in the final days or kind of final weeks. So so I think that's kind of uh, I think that's one thing. The other thing I would say is I I get the sense that um, as we started that, you know, America is really listening to, uh, to Gen Z in a way that I'm not sure that they listened to millennials, you know, um, 10, 15 years ago. Um, I, I, I think that, that certainly kind of the White House and I think the, the committees, you know, largely are kind of uh, understand the integral role that young people played in the success of the Democratic coalition. And um, I'm... I'm hopeful that um, you know that they will uh, continue to, to kind of to, to 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 make those efforts, but you know we shared um, some of the cross tabs from you know from a, a wave of polling in Georgia, as an example, uh, you know uh, about a week or so ago, and and if not for younger people, you know um, uh, young people are the, the only reason really, you know that Warnock, Raphael Warnock, and uh, Stacey Abrams are in the positions that they're in. You know, they're losing by significant margins, you know, among Gen Xers and baby boomers. It's young people are kind of keeping them kind of uh, active and in this, in, this, in this game. So you need to continue to, um, to both persuade and mobilize this generation and, and, frankly, empower young people. Because I think young people are among the best messengers to convince their parents and grandparents. You know, um, to also participate and to to talk about the issues that they care about and why, you know, um, supporting the candidates that they believe in is going to be a, a benefit to everybody. Yes, kind of a bit of a follow up question. You said about earning the vote. I read something recently that for some people, their vote is like a Valentine card to pledge their love, and for some people, hmm. their vote is a chess move and it's strategic to benefit them. I know that every individual is different, but by and large, hmm. how do you think Gen Z voters see their vote? Is it a Valentine card or a chess move? That's a great, great question. And um, you know what? I think it's actually more of a Valentine's Day card. And and uh, yeah, it's a question that I've been asking in, in, in my, in my uh, focus groups and my time meetings for years. I ask young people, um, when they vote, what identity are they bringing into the voting booth, right? Who are they? Are they representing themselves, their party? You know, where are they coming from? And more often than not, I hear young people tell me that they're voting for, for someone other than them. You know, maybe for their, for their grandparents or great-grandparents who didn't have the right to vote, you know, or, or for that new immigrant you know, who doesn't have the right to vote but wants to make a life in America, or to someone more vulnerable than they are. So um, more times than not, that's what I hear. And I do think that's a little bit more of a Valentine's Day card 
than than the habits of perhaps people you know my age. I trust your answer, but I will tell you I think that means there's more work getting these voters because if it was a chess move, they would look at it strategically, and you wouldn't have to do as much convincing if you were just right on the issues. Um, so so well, that, that is an yep, interesting answer and right. insightful, I think. Yeah, well, you know what we always talk about, right? You have to show the tangible difference that politics can make, right? You get to show the difference between, you know, uh, this candidate and the other candidate. So um, I do think there's a sense that, you know, they're not just voting kind of for themselves, but they're voting for something bigger and greater. But you're right. It makes it harder to convince them because sometimes, you know, things take a little, you know, uh, it's, it's challenging. Politics are opaque. It, things, change takes a long time. And that's always the rub, right? They don't see that the tangible difference that quickly. Um, oftentimes, it takes a, a generation or two. You know? It took a, it took a, took a couple of generations, you know, for the Republicans to roll back Roe Ro v. Wade, you know, um, um, and uh, it took a couple of generations to pass, you know, Affordable Care Act. So politics and government can take a long time, but um, I do think there's elements, I guess, of both, right? They're protect, they're trying to you know, share, show their respect and their love for others and the degree to which that we can make it more tangible and more, more urgent. I think you see a larger number voting. I think it's an interesting perspective you bring to that. Yes. Well, such great information uh, tonight and in the book. Um, before you go, tell our listeners where they can buy the book. If you've got a paperback date coming, anything you want to announce. And then, of course, if they, people want to, you know, read your work elsewhere. Great. Well, thank you. Yeah, the book is available essentially where, where all books are sold. It's called Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their passion, their Fear and Passion to Save America. It's, it's hardcover now. It's on audio. Paperback is coming uh, next April, I think, which is, which is terrific. And um, also all of the politics website. And um, I did just write an op-ed in the New York Times about the combination of factors that I think could lead to Democratic success in November, kind of based heavily on, on Gen Z and, and some of the things we talked about this evening as well. Yes, sir. Well, we're going to keep reading your work between now and November. Maybe at some point in the future we can get you back on again because you are the expert on these issues. I want to tell you, I listened to your book and David Gergen's book back-to-back, and he mentions you and your work in parts of his book. That is, uh, as you can imagine, for someone like me, just an incredible uh, honor. Um, I've gotten to know um, Professor Grogan, you know, a little bit over the years um, from, his, from his work at the Kennedy School, and, and, and what an honor that is to have a chance to collaborate and, and share some of uh, perspective. And it certainly makes me feel good, right, when he sees the same hope and optimism about uh, our future to the eyes of, you know, such a history and what I think could be the next great, the next great generation, the next great, the next great generation, not taking anything away, of course, from our grandparents and great grandparents, but this generation has an opportunity to do something really special, I think. Hey, hopefully we'll all raise our game up and, and maybe even our generation can become greater. Um, there's hope for all of us as long as we still got breath in our lungs. Well, you got John, it. we want to thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Always a pleasure. I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you, sir. Same here. Thank you, guys. 
All right. Take care. Thank you. John DeLaVolpe, uh, such great information. Probably the person that knows more and does more research on this age group. And, you know, I think he makes the point in the book, you know, whereas a certain uh, type of worker, a certain racial group may be in a certain region of the country more or less, voters of a certain age are going to be, you know, all throughout the country. And so um, that, that's, a, you know, really important um, so that every state knows about how Gen Z voters are feeling about issues. Well, Tim, we got just a minute of time for one of our um, bizarre topics that keeps coming up. Um, in Elberton, Georgia, late in the week, um, there was an explosion of, I guess, about 6 o'clock in the morning. Um, I, I was here in the room, so I have an alibi. Um, the Georgia Guidestones, one piece of them was blown up to the point where they just weren't safe and they had to be taken all the way down. Now, I've said it before. They were strange to put up, and they're strange to attack. Um, oh, but this is kind of out of nowhere. I have a feeling if one particular candidate uh, didn't put so much emphasis and attention on this issue, I don't know that this action would have happened. Um, but, you know, she's threatened everybody, including podcasters, um, that don't, don't claim she did this. So we didn't do that. We just said she put a lot of attention on it. But, uh, Tim, what's your thoughts on what happened to the Georgia Guidestone and just kind of a fallout afterwards? You're right about a certain candidate um, going off the deep end about this, but she had a ready and eager audience to listen to her. This conspiracy craziness goes back to, oh, 2005. Somebody uh, using the handle John Connor, you know, the Terminator, from the Terminator movies, uh, began talking about the Guidestones being um, satanic and uh, that they should be destroyed. He did this on his own website. Turns out John Connor, by the way, is uh, this uh, pro-life YouTube guy, or pro-Trump, rather, YouTube guy, uh, Mark Price, for those of you that that have heard of him. And QAnon then got in on the craziness, as they normally do, and they they were saying that the Guidestones are connected to COVID and sex trafficking, among other things. Uh, nobody is actually <laughs> sure what they're there for or, or, or who had them built. Uh, that's always been kind of kind of quiet. Uh, Alex Jones even even. Uh, railed about him. He, he, he even visited the site. Uh, now, then, then, as we know, a certain candidate started. Uh, you know, the funny thing, Dave, is the state of Georgia even promoted uh, the site on its tourism. And something like 20,000 visitors a year were, were going over there to see this. And it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Um, uh, it is being investigated. One prosecutor uh, even went so far as to call this an act of domestic terrorism. Now, let me ask you, would you go that far with this? Is this an act of domestic terrorism? 
I will say this. The victim of it is kind of unclear. My understanding is these are related to the Ron, L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology movement, which uh-huh. I have a feeling they don't have a big base in Elberton, Georgia. So it wasn't like you know they struck out at this group of people um, that they struck at, that they feared what they didn't understand. Both mm-hmm. Taylor, you know Alex Jones, um, the people that did this action, you know that they, they they didn't understand it, they feared it. I mean, and honestly, John John Oliver on you know HBO, he kind of mocked them. Now he he kind of mocked her for mocking them, but he kind of was like, these are weird. I mean, there there comes something about like if there's a nuclear war, we had to rebuild a population. There was a, a special limit of each race. And so it kind of got, you know, flirted with eugenics, um, which is, you know, pretty sketchy business in itself. But nevertheless, whether you were to the right or the left or anywhere on the Georgia Guidestones, they were just there. I mean, you and I don't know why the Stonehenge got put up. But it, since it's mm-hmm. made for thousands and thousands of years, it's quite a landmark. It may have had more mm-hmm. sinister purposes than these Georgia Guidestones ever had. I don't know, but mm-hmm. if somebody went and destroyed them, it, it'd be a big, big deal because that's seen as a, you know, historic, real well, tourism landmark. Um, yeah, so the the problem. We don't know how the problem. Are strange sometimes. Yeah, the problem. Somebody used powerful explosives to do this. Now it's just a hop and a skip from using powerful explosives there to using them at, at some other place that people might be in on the conspiracy with, uh, some site that people consider satanic. Next time, there might be a lot of people there. You know, th- this is this is serious business. Uh, this, I mean, that's an act of violence, even though nobody was there. And, uh, man, yeah. I hope they get those that did it, because if they did it to that... Why would they not do it to something else, right? Yeah, I mean, fortunately, no one was there, and that that's, you know, very important. But just the fact that they would do this, because who you're not to say what should be up or shouldn't be up. It has to go through a real process. Um, if it's on private property, the private property owners have to decide. If it's on public property, you go through the government channels, Um and so you can't just destroy things because you don't like it, um, and that's the bigger thing there. You certainly don't do it by you just uh, blasting it up because there are rules to you know using explosives. I guess Brian Kemp had to you know when he shot his campaign ads for the primary last year, he probably had to get permits for all that. I guess. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he did. Yeah. What kind so, of explosives? Well, um, do we even know? Yeah, we don't know now, and maybe we'll know more later. I don't think this will be a pressing issue week after week. Um, I know I'm not going to sit around and mourn the loss of, you know, the rock pile, but um, it just really it just says a lot when someone takes their, this much time out of their life to destroy something they don't, you know, even understand or agree with. Well, we want to thank again John Delavolpe for coming on the show. Next week we've got an exciting show. We're going to talk to our Pennsylvania uh, political expert Mike Mitkus, and he's also going to have to cover a little New Jersey politics for us um, since there's that one candidate that commutes 
over to the Keystone State. So next <laughs> week we'll talk to Mike um, about everything happened in Pennsylvania. Until next week, All for the right. Coach Vine. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and